0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Church podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, B.C., we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Our scripture this morning is from Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 20. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of our Lord. He may be seated.
1: I'm going to invite you now, uh, if you do have a Bible with you, um, a Bible app, uh, the insert, whatever it is, if you would turn back to that passage, Ephesians chapter 6, I'll be focusing primarily on the last verses there, 17 through 20. Um, just as a heads up, as you're turning there, um, I've given the uh, tech team all of two slides uh, to use today, so uh, if you don't see a bunch of slides coming up here, don't, don't look up at them, they're doing their job excellently, so... Um, There's nothing wrong, nothing to correct. Let me pray for us just quickly, and then we'll dive into this text together. Spirit of God, we ask that you would now illumine the preaching of your word, open our minds, our hearts, our ears to receive what it is you want to speak to us today. Your word promises us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to us void or return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, there were those of you who I know uh, felt its absence very deeply during the beginning of the pandemic with the lockdown. we, We couldn't gather together with others. And I know that there are those of you who didn't miss it at all. Um, I'm referring, of course, to the NHL hockey season, which took you know, something of a pause along with other major sports uh, during the early days of the pandemic. But whether you're someone who loves hockey, hates hockey, doesn't care about hockey, uh, even if you've seen like one game, you'll know at least the importance of something like the hockey stick in the game. Um, In fact, I think it could be fairly said that even with every other piece of hockey equipment strapped, snapped, tied onto your body, without the hockey stick in your hands, you have no hope of being victorious in the game. And I think the the reason for that is just because you use the hockey stick for everything. You you use it uh, defensively. You're trying to take the puck away. You're trying to stop attacks coming. You also use it offensively. It's how you score goals. So we we, we need the the stick. Uh, It's an essential piece of the equipment. Um, In fact, if you've seen what happens when a player loses the stick, either it gets knocked out of their hands or it breaks as they're taking a shot, whatever it is, suddenly uh, they become either a a, a moving target uh, for that puck as a defenseman or suddenly you can't score goals anymore. So super important. But if I can just sustain that hockey analogy for just one more minute, I promise you this is a message from the Bible. (laughs) While the hockey stick is, it's, it's indispensable to being victorious in the game, being a sport that's played almost entirely on a sheet of ice, I think it could also be said that the hockey skates are essential for being able to participate in the sport at all. The reason for that, just think about it, if you're there on a giant sheet of ice, those blades on the bottom of the protective shoes worn by every single hockey player, those are the things that enable every other piece of the hockey equipment to be able to function effectively, right? Take away those blades out on the ice and suddenly, even if you've got every other hockey piece, hockey equipment on, it suddenly becomes useless. So we're concluding this teaching series today that you guys have been working through the last number of weeks entitled Stand, focusing our attention on the armor of God that Paul lists here in Ephesians 6. Which, I don't know, coming to the end of a series, I don't know if it's the same for you when when that happens. It always feels like a, a fulfilling kind of thing, but also a little bit melancholy when a series comes to an end. Um, Either way, I'm very grateful to be with you here today. I appreciate Barton's trust and your grace in allowing me to share with you from God's word as well as to wrap up this series, bring it to a conclusion. So thinking about the book of Ephesians. Maybe you knew already that the message of Ephesians as a whole, here Paul examines the eternal plan of God to unite all things together, in heaven and on earth together, back to himself in Jesus, as well as what life is supposed to look like once someone has been reconciled according to that plan. Paul began his letter to the church in Ephesus here with the eternal hope that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now he closes out the letter talking about the blessings of God's strength as well as his armor by which he enables us to stand firm in this unseen spiritual battle that we're all fighting against and constantly raging against us as I've followed along with this series from a distance across the water anyway, I see you've spent the last number of weeks considering the reality of this battle that we're all involved in, as well as each piece of the armor of God individually. And as we come now to Paul's final descriptions of the armor of God, I hope you were already picking up on some of the the connections. You were connecting the dots there between that whole discussion I began with about hockey sticks and hockey skates, And what the Apostle Paul says here in this passage, how that relates to what he says about the sword and about prayer. Because what we see in Paul's descriptions of these two things as he closes out his discussion here is, first of all, that we've moved now from the pieces of armor that are strictly defensive in nature to pieces that can also be used offensively in the battle. And... As it relates to prayer in particular, just like hockey skates enable every other piece of hockey equipment to be used effectively on the ice, I believe what Paul is showing us here is that prayer is the thing that enables all the other pieces of the armor of God to be used effectively in the battle. We're going to look a bit more deeply into each of those descriptions as we dig in this morning. But I think big picture, what it is that Paul is trying to say to us, and, and I think it's easy to sometimes lose sight of when you uh, spread this series out and look at each piece of the armor of God individually, is, is simply this, that standing firm in the battle... What Paul has said repeatedly is the purpose of God's blessings of strength and armor. Standing firm in the battle is not intended to be a solely defensive posture. It's not intended to be solely defensive. That is, the armor of God is not like a bomb shelter out in the middle of the field that we just hunker down in and wait for the enemy's attacks to be over. No. No, we are given these means to mount an attack as well as to defend ourselves in the battle. We're given the means to take enemy ground, as well as to defend our own. And I'm praying as we look through this, that you'll come to see how our standing firm in the battle means both of those things. And I want to show that to you as we come to our passage here in just two ways. We'll look at the defense and offense of the sword, and then the enabling power of prayer. Just those two things. The defense and offense of the sword the enabling power of prayer. So again, keep that scripture open with you. Uh, If you will, I want you to follow along with me as we work through this final piece together as we close out this teaching series on the armor of God and consider Paul's descriptions of the armor which enables us to stand firm in the battle. Okay, so let's look first of all at this sword of the spirit. Sword of the spirit and talk about the defense and offense of the sword. The defense and offense of the sword. So look again with me at verse 17. Paul says, and take up the helmet of salvation. That's what you looked at one of the pieces two weeks ago. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what actually we discover when you look at the word, the Greek word Paul uses there in verse 17, lets us know what kind of sword it is that Paul is talking about specifically. Uh, The word that he uses there refers to the Roman short sword known as the gladius. This was a short sword about two feet long, two inches wide. And maybe you'd say, well, great, uh, who, who cares? The point, the reason Paul wants us to know this and why it's important for us to know what kind of sword he's talking about is because the weapon that Paul has in mind here is a sword that was used in hand-to-hand fighting. Hand-to-hand fighting. Fighting at close range with the enemy, so close that you could tell whether they brushed their teeth or had a shower that morning. So you are right in there. We haven't been given long-range weapons. We haven't been given the the javelin of the spirit or the uh, arrows or the tomahawk missile of the spirit. We're given a sword, which is meant for up-close, in-your-face contact. So that's fairly straightforward. Again, we're told exactly what kind of sword. But where things can become a little bit more confusing, a little bit more uh, difficult to understand, is when we try to understand what Paul means when he says, by the word of God, to which he says this sword of the Spirit is referring. Does Paul mean uh, the spoken word of God? Um, Some audible speaking of God? Does he mean the written word of God that we have in the Scriptures? Does he mean... The message of the gospel, all of which could rightly claim the title, Word of God. Well, I think the easiest way to answer that question is just to say, yes. Yes, that's, that's what Paul means. He means all of these. He has all of them in mind. But I think a helpful way to think about which meaning fits best is to remember that just as we saw with the analogy of the hockey stick, A sword has both offensive as well as defensive uses in an attack, right? A sword can be used to attack someone, but it can also be used to block attacks or parry attacks that come against you. And so I think it's an understanding how it is that you're using the sword, specifically that different meanings come to the forefront. Let me show you what I mean. So for example, in verses 19 and 20, if you look there, Paul is asking the church to pray for him that he'll be enabled to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Presumably this has to do with both Paul's like everyday interactions but also this upcoming trial that he has before Caesar, which he's awaiting here under house arrest, and the hope being that the spirit will empower his proclamation of the gospel message, his proclamation of the word of God, so that those who hear it, those who hear it in his everyday sharing of the message, those hopefully maybe even the emperor himself at his defense, will come to a saving faith in Jesus. Now, yes, in Romans 10, 17, Paul writes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But what that doesn't mean that when Paul is sharing the gospel message with people, when he's sharing his message, uh, let's say at his trial, he's not going to get up on the witness stand and they ask him a question. He's not going to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Like he's not going to start quoting the scripture, right? No, he's going to present a summary of the scripture culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a.k.a. the gospel message. That's what he's going to be presenting. That's the, the way he's going to be using the sword in, in this environment. So that's why earlier in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. But then think about that. Whether uh, it's somebody hearing the message of the gospel and coming to faith for the very first time. Or maybe somebody hearing the message of the gospel and they're reminded of, of that, that truth. And it helps them to grow in their faith. Helps them to experience greater freedom from some sin struggle. That's, a, that's an offensive action against the kingdom of darkness, right? You're using this sword offensively. It's taking ground, formerly held by the enemy, that's come as a result of taking up the sword of the Spirit and using it in this attacking, offensive way. But then, on the other side, a classic example of using the sword in a defensive way comes from the life of Jesus himself, Matthew 4. Where if you know that that part of Jesus' life, right after he's baptized, he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days, where he's tempted by the enemy... And in response to each of Satan's attacks, Jesus blocks or or parries against Satan's attacks with, it is written, and then goes on to quote some relevant passage from the Old Testament scriptures, defending against the enemy's attacks with the written word of God. So clearly, the context, the the intended use of the sword of the Spirit in battle determines how we understand what Paul means by word of God. How we understand which usage and how it's intended to be understood. But as Clinton Arnold rightly notes, there's really no compelling reason to be forced to choose between one or the other, defense or offense. He says, the language of the text equally supports both. But what about us? What about you and me? We're here at 2021. What does this look like for us specifically today? How do I take up the sword of the Spirit and use it today in my own life? It's a great question. I think the first question you need to answer, though, before you seek to understand how to take up the sword of the Spirit is, do I really believe this unseen spiritual battle that Paul's been talking about all through the letter here, do I really believe that that battle is actually happening? Do I really believe that? And the reason you need to answer that question first is because if you say, "Well, well, no," I mean, I don't think there's really a battle happening, or or even probably no. Well, then suddenly the question of how do I take up the sword of the Spirit and use it is actually kind of a meaningless question. It's, it's useless. It's theoretical at best. Because if you don't believe there's really a battle taking place, you're never going to put in the effort required to handle the sword properly, to handle the Word of God effectively. And hear me, that's not me saying, like, I don't know what your careers or your jobs are today. That's not me saying, everybody quit your job. Quit your job and you need to become a pastor, a theologian, a master of the scriptures so you can use the word effectively. No, that's not what I'm saying. Think about every Roman soldier out there on the battlefield. He has become proficient in using his own sword, his own gladium, more and more effectively. But that didn't mean that every soldier was also a trainer. No, they simply needed to become more and more proficient in the use of their own sword so that when they got out on the battlefield, they'd have a fighting chance of actually being able to stand, actually be able to fight effectively because they became more proficient in the use of their own sword. But in the same way that I need to believe the doctor when he tells me I have a dangerously high cholesterol level before I'll do the hard work of actually changing my diet, doing the stuff I need to do, We need to believe the Bible that this spiritual battle Paul is talking about really is happening. That it's raging all around us or you'll never begin to take the steps necessary to become proficient with the use of the one offensive weapon that God has given us with which to fight in the battle. So don't start by asking, how do I use the sword effectively? Start by asking, do I think I actually need to use a sword at all? Because if you think you need it, you'll do the work to become proficient in using it. But let's just assume you do. Let's let's say you agree with Paul that this battle really is happening and, and you want to know, okay, but so how do I do this? How do I take up the sword of the spirit and use it today? Well, I love uh, Tim Keller's kind of summary of what this looks like, of what it use what it means to use the sword of the spirit. He says it here, it means to know the word of God so well and to understand its practical implications that you could use it on the spot. I think that's a great summary definition of what it means. To know the word of God so well, and to understand its practical implications so well, that you could use it on the spot. To which Keller helpfully, or maybe frighteningly, adds, this is not something you can do tonight. (laughs) Right? You can't say, by tomorrow, I will be using the sword of the Spirit in my hands. No, right? Like anything using something, learning to use something more proficiently takes an investment. It takes an investment of time, of energy, of focus in order to be able to use something effectively. So sort of the spirit, what does that mean? Like, like what kind of things do we do? Well, you're doing one of them right now. Congratulations, you've already started your training. Uh, s- gathering together as God's people. Here, in person, online, whatever it is, taking the time to sit under the teaching of God's Word is one of the ways that we become more proficient in the use of the sword of the Spirit. So check, you're already doing one. Uh, what else? We can join uh, home groups, core groups, Bible studies, whatever you call them. Uh, being, gathering with other people who are studying and learning the Word together. That's another simple way you can do it. Um, spending time each day reading and meditating on God's word, committing certain passages to memory. These are just some of the simple ways every day that we become more proficient in the use of the sword of the spirit. And then as you begin to become more proficient with the sword, you'll find that your ability to stand firm in the attacks of, of the evil one begin to become easier. You begin to find it more easy to stand firm in the midst of the battle. It means... You become more proficient, more uh, confident in your sharing of the gospel message with other people. Not confident like more brash or more pushy with people, but you become more skilled at being able to nuance the message of the gospel to questions that people bring to you. Uh, Friends and family, when they ask you about things, you can apply the truths of scripture more easily as you become more proficient. Uh, When you've sinned in some way. And the devil's attacks of condemning begin to come against you. You can now strike back with, "It is written. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can acknowledge the reality, yes, this sin is grievous to God, but Jesus' blood has covered this. This has already been paid for." Or maybe on the other side, maybe you begin to struggle with pride self-righteousness. You start to look down on other people and their struggles with sin. Now you can strike back against your pride with, it is written, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. To remind myself, maybe I need to be more gracious and patient with people in their own struggles, because I know it's only the grace of God that saved me. When someone's struggling in their life feels abandoned by God, I now have some of his precious promises on hand, ready to use to to encourage them, to, to defend them against the enemy's attack against them. One of the ways that I've learned to become more proficient in the use of the sword myself is when the enemy seeks to remind me of my past. He points to who I was before I knew Jesus and I begin to become overwhelmed. I begin to feel guilt and shame The enemy seeks to lie against me, say, like, how inadequate you must be. Look at how how do you think you could actually lead a family? How do you think you could actually lead a church? Look at who you were. Look at the things you did. I can now strike back with, it is written. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is passed away. The new has come. And I don't know, maybe you have those verses memorized. Maybe you just are faster at being able to find them in in your Bible, whatever it is. The point is, now, into every offensive and defensive situation, you take the sword of the Spirit with you. You fight back against the kingdom of darkness raging against you with greater effectiveness. You take back more and more ground for the kingdom as God's ministers of reconciliation, more and more proficient in their use of the sword. The one kind of additional thing I'd add there, a little proviso to that, is just to say, and I add this not from any kind of moral high ground, I say this as one failure to other failures, is to always remember in your growing proficiency with the use of the sword what Paul says there in verse 12 about who it is that we're supposed to be fighting against. I know Barton has mentioned this a number of times, let me remind us of it again. Remember, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I don't know. I've seen it so often myself, and I know I've been guilty of this. Far too often, the word of God is used to swing at flesh and blood and not at the spiritual forces of evil. And yeah, I know sometimes that doesn't mean that the evil one doesn't at times manifest himself in the evil actions of others. He does. But may our reputation, may what we're known for as God's people be those who use the word of God to defend others, who use the word of God to build up others and to heal others, not those who are proficient at the sword in order to divide and to argue, to destroy and cut people down. Let's be known for the first way of how we use the word. There's so, so much more I could say there, but that's, that's what we'll say for, for now, the, the defense and offense of the sword. How we use it depends on the circumstance and the usage. But it is the use of God's word to take back ground from the enemy. Last thing I want to look at together with you is what Paul has to say about the enabling power of prayer. The enabling power of prayer. Now, I don't know if it's the same for you. But for myself, when I read through Paul's teaching on the armor of God, the question that comes to me there when we get to verse 18, look with me here, is whether we're supposed to understand prayer as the final piece of the armor of God. Is that, is that what Paul's saying? Prayer is the last piece that we put on. Well, there certainly seems to be the, the, the flow of Paul's thoughts. It would make sense that that's what he's trying to teach. Particularly, you see the repeated use of the word spirit there. We had sword of the spirit, praying in the spirit. That, that seems to make sense. And yeah, there's all kinds of examples in the Bible and elsewhere where prayer is also used offensively as well as defensively. So that makes sense. However, after further study and looking into this a lot more, I now agree with most commentators that Paul is not seeking or intending to include prayer as the seventh piece of armor. The Simplest reason, among others, is because if you notice, if you read through each piece of the armor there, Paul doesn't connect prayer with any physical piece of armor as he does with each of the other pieces. Right, So we have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all these different pieces, but he doesn't say and, and put on the knee pads of prayer or something like that. There's, there's no physical piece that's connected to it. But make no mistake, that doesn't mean for a moment that prayer is somehow unrelated or irrelevant to what Paul has to say here about the armor of God. No, on the contrary, prayer is integral to our effective use of the armor of God in the battle. And as I said when we began, prayer is essential to using the armor at all in the same way that blades on the hockey skates are essential to using every other piece of hockey equipment. How so? Well, because while prayer may not be describing another piece of the armor of God, if you read through Paul's description, it is a continuing description of what it looks like to stand firm. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 14 through 18 here. If you look at everything that Paul lists there, every piece of armor or otherwise, in verse 14 or 18, you'll notice these are actually descriptions of, we could say subclauses of, what it looks like to stand firm. Which means you could read this passage this way. Stand therefore by fastening on the belt of truth. Stand firm, therefore, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of gospel readiness. Stand, therefore, by taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances. Stand firm by taking up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And stand firm by praying in the Spirit and keeping alert. The the related command there in verse 18. So we're not just to be prayerful, we're to be those who are alert who are persevering and and alert and awake in prayer. In fact, when you think about one of the only other occasions in the New Testament outside of the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 there, where it's obvious that Jesus is under heavy temptation, heavy distress when the battle appears to be most fearful, fearful and heavy for him, is where? It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to head to the cross, and the battle is so fierce that we're told that he actually sweat drops of blood. But if you remember Jesus' instruction to his disciples there, rather than telling them, guys, listen, the battle is fierce. You need to suit up. Get ready. We're about to go into a heavy battle. What does he say to them instead? Mark fourteen thirty eight. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Not suit up in the armor, watch, be alert, and pray that you may not fall into temptation. For the flesh is weak and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or consider Peter, Peter who who failed to do either of those things and thus was not able to stand firm. What does Peter say in the face of our persecution, anxieties, and cares? He says, be alert and of sober mind, the very things that Peter was not on that night. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith and in the knowledge that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Prayer, notes Clinton Arnold, is at the very heart of spiritual warfare. Prayer is at the very heart of spiritual warfare as it is the means, he says, by which believers depend upon the Lord and request his empowerment for themselves and for others in the body of Christ. He goes on, prayer does not present, Paul does not present prayer as an additional weapon, but as a foundational and continual activity that is crucial to deploy all of the other armor and weapons that he's just commended to the church. It's the means by which we put it on and make use of it of the, the rest of the armor of God. John Stott says it like this. Paul adds prayer not probably because he thinks of prayer as another, though, unnamed weapon, but because it is to so pervade all of our spiritual warfare. Equipping ourselves with God's armor, he says, is not a mechanical operation. It is itself an expression of our dependence on God, in other words, of prayer. And maybe you wonder, like, why is Paul making such a big deal about this? We've got the armor. That's the the good part, right? Why is he making such a big deal about watchfulness and prayer? My guess is if Paul were standing here amongst us right now in the midst of uh, of this and and, and his his question, given the, the reality of this spiritual battle raging all around us, his question to us would be, why do you make so little of them? How could you possibly make so little of those things in the midst of this battle that you're involved in? For prayer, prayer is our direct line of communication, our direct line of communion with the almighty God of the universe made possible by the reconciling work of Jesus. It's what Hebrews 4 tells us. Because of Christ's work, we can now enter confidently into the very throne room of God. Which means, listen, prayer is both our undeserved privilege as well as our access to God's immeasurable power by which we are enabled to stand firm. There's no hope of standing firm without the power that we access through, through, through prayer. In fact, if you go back, look at Paul's epic prayers that he prays at the beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, chapter 3. You'll see that his prayers for them in both of those chapters are that, first of all, they might know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards them who believe and that they might experience that power, experience the power of the one who can do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. The way you take hold of that power in order that you might be able to stand firm in any and every attack Paul is saying is through prayer. This is how you do it. Prayer thus epitomizes what Paul has said in verse 10 there, be strong in the Lord, says Clinton Arnold. Prayer epitomizes what it means to stand firm in the Lord and be strong in him. Because, he says, it represents calling on God to empower his people to fulfill what he has called them to be and to do. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but I know for me in my own life, when I think about this myself, when I think about my life and the situations where I have failed God in ways that I'd be embarrassed for anyone to know about. What I know is that nine times out of ten, I've fallen on my face not because I didn't have the armor on, but because I failed to heed Jesus' simple instructions to his disciples there in the garden, watch and pray, to just be aware and be alert and remind myself I'm in a battle right now. You ever think about, like, just driving down a highway, (laughs) heavy traffic, heavy rain? Is there any time when you cannot be alert and ready, watching? No. You recognize you're in a situation where you need to be alert, and so you're alert. We remind ourselves we're in this battle. It doesn't mean we walk around fearful all the time, but we're alert and ready for attack. I mean, we've already said how ineffective a fully suited hockey player is with no blades on the bottom of their skates. You ever seen what happens to a hockey player when they're skating down the ice with their head down just staring at the puck? They get laid out flat and usually end up needing to be carried off the ice to watch and pray. Can You understand now why Paul's making such a big deal about this? Why staying alert in prayer is so integral to the effective use of the armor of God and why the enemy would be so afraid, so filled with dread at our consistent use of prayer. For Samuel Chadwick Puritan said it so well, Satan laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Finally, to stand firm. I don't know how this sounds to you, particularly if you're someone here today. Maybe uh, you've got no background in church, and this all sounds super new and weird. And it might seem like this whole discussion of like spiritual armor and spiritual batters, just a bit, it's a bit far fetched. Like maybe Paul is some kind of military hobbyist with an overactive imagination. Maybe. Maybe he is. And yet Paul's stated point from the beginning of this letter is that God's intended plan, his eternal purpose set before the foundation of the world was to unite all things in heaven and on earth back to him through Jesus. And it's a purpose that involves you and involves me. We're part of what God wants to unite back to himself. And it's a purpose as we've seen that God's enemy, the enemy of his people, the devil, has been set on destroying, has been set on prohibiting and keeping from coming about from the beginning. John Stott says it like this, as it relates to Satan and his forces of evil. Think about these things. Is, God, is God's plan to create a new society? Then the forces of evil, they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil will do his best to strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them seeds of discord and sin. See why it's so important for us to watch and be aware. This is the reality of the battle that we're involved in. This is the reality of the battle for all God's reconciled people. And you're involved in, sorry to say, whether you wish to be involved in it or not. You are involved in it. It's the reason Paul has also been so desperate to warn us of its powerful danger and to call us to stand firm in the strength and the armor that God has provided So this series, as it comes to a conclusion now, you've, you've taken time over these weeks here to, to study through each piece of the armor of God. We've talked about how it protects you, how it defends you. As well as today, we've looked at the empowering force of prayer, how it holds the whole suit together, enables it to be used effectively. But now, the, the table is set, everything is out in front of you, you've got all the information in hand. The only thing left to do is the one thing that nobody can do for you. And that's to put it on. To put it on. Which, in closing, is exactly what I want us to practice doing together right now. To do something today that maybe you've never done before. Or maybe it's been a long time since you've done it. To make use of this means of access to God's power that enables all of the pieces of armor to be used effectively. And to use that power in order to put on the armor ourselves. And so as we close today, whether you are in this gathering here present or you're watching online, what I want us to do for just a few minutes together, just to quietly, where you are in your own seat, sitting at home, first of all, I want you to pray and ask God to cover you with each piece of the armor. That's why I wanted you to keep the scripture open. You can see each piece there. I want you to pray and say, God, would you cover me with your armor today? I acknowledge I'm in the midst of the battle. Would you cover me with your armor today? You can name each piece. If you're dealing with a particularly maybe heavy situation in your life right now, I feel overwhelmed by circumstances of life. You could pray, God, would you cover my heart and my emotions with the breastplate of righteousness? Maybe your mind is overwhelmed with thoughts of a difficult family situation, uh, the flooding, the continued COVID crisis, all these things. Would you guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus with the helmet of salvation? Enemies' attacks are coming against me with this temptation guard my mind God with the helmet of salvation whatever it is in verse 18 Paul tells us to pray earnestly like this also for all the saints and so once you're done praying for yourself I'd like you to then pray for others I want you to pray for your family members parents pray for your kids kids pray for your parents Pray that other members of this church, whoever it is, that ask that God would protect and defend them with his strength and armor, enable them to stand firm in the battle. Finally, as Paul asks in verse 19, I want to ask that you would pray for your pastor, pray for his family, pray for the leadership of this church. Ask for the covering of God's armor to cover your pastor, cover his family and that in his strength God might continue to enable them to stand as well as to proclaim the mystery of the gospel boldly as they ought. So we're praying for ourselves, praying for others, praying for your pastors. Let's do that together right now. I'll close us in a minute, but let's take time to access the power God's made available to us, access the armor he's made available to protect us. Put it on. And I'll close us in a minute. Let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, as your servant, that father said so many years ago in your presence, I do believe, help my unbelief. How would you help our unbelief? This battle we're involved in, it is unseen. And so often because of that, we fail to stand firm. We fail to be alert and watch. Give us eyes to see that reality, not in a way to be fearful, but in order to be alert and watchful, to seek your power to help us because we recognize we need it. God, forgive us for those times where we felt like we could do this on our own. We felt like we didn't need your armor. We, we, we knew enough. We're good enough. Our only ability to stand is in your strength. And the power that you provide. Would you provide it for us today and in each day to come? God, give us confidence to stand firm in the battle. May we see the reality of that even in the coming days as we become more proficient in our use of your word. As we become those who are alert and watchful where we need to stand firm. Help us, we pray. It's only by your Spirit we'll do this, and I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.